I will be reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Eugene. Morning, everybody. Would you guys just uh, pray with me real quick? Gracious and holy God, uh, this passage that we're going to look at today, Isaiah 53, is really just, the, it is literally the crux of uh, our faith. It is the crux of who we are in you. It is the crux of our righteousness. And so, God, as we open it up and study it, I just pray that you would bless us with your words, with your communication, and, God, that in the midst of all of this, we would be able to glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Um, before we get started today, and if you want to turn to Isaiah 53, that is where we, we will eventually end up. But uh, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, something that's going on here uh, in Arcadia as well as in Redemption at large. Uh, many of you know Redemption is a multi-congregational church. And uh, one of the great things I think that Redemption does is we um, uh, seek to find and identify gifted uh, young people to be able to work into uh, ministry situations, and we do this in a variety of ways, and one of them is through uh, something called a pastoral residency, and so we already have a couple of pastoral residents here who are uh, working and serving here and learning from us, and we're learning from them, uh, and we're about to add yet another one, and he is standing to my left. Um, think of the context of Arcadia and, and see if anybody can guess his first name. Can anybody guess it? Sean, yeah, it's Sean, so we are on a mission to gather all the Seans in Arcadia. So we have a Sean Johnson, a Sean Mortensen, and now we have a Sean Myers. So uh, we're trying to work out all the nicknames and everything. We can't use the last name uh, initial because we have two Sean M's, and so that doesn't work, and so. Sean Puffy Combs. Sean, Sean Puffy Combs is what we're gonna call him, exactly, so. Anyway, uh, uh, I've known Sean now for three months uh, because of this thing that we do in Redemption called the Preaching Collective. Once a week, uh, all the pastors, including some of the worship pastors, get together to study the passage that we're going to be looking at on Sunday morning. It's very helpful. It's an iron sharpening iron kind of a thing. Uh, it makes me, I think, a, a better teacher and preacher. And uh, one of the things that's been happening at the, the collective is that Sean has been showing up every single week, uh, even though he doesn't necessarily go into a congregation then teach. He just wants to learn. And um, all of us in the collective have found that Sean is... Um, really smart, uh, really good student of the Bible, excellent communicator. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've ripped off his stuff and put it into my sermon and taken all the credit for it. Um, and now he is with us. He's going to be with us the next 18 or 24 months. And so we wanted to introduce him to you so that you would know who he is. Please welcome him, and then I'll ask him a question. <laughs> 
So, Sean, you are married and you have a family, and tell us a little bit about that, and just tell us the call that God has put on your life. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I am married to uh, a woman named Candace. She was in the first service, uh, she and my two boys, two and four. Uh, my youngest is uh, two is Titus, and my four-year-old is Corbin. Um, and, uh, yeah, we grew up in the valley. We, we have actually spent the last uh, year uh, in Tempe, and it just made sense for us to kind of um, come to Arcadia uh, for a lot of reasons. One, because we have all of our family and friends are on this side. Both Candace and I graduated um, from Shadow Mountain. And so, yeah, go, okay. That's, uh, that's what I'm talking about. All right. Um, and, uh, I mean, our, 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 uh, our redemption community is over there. And so, for us, it just kind of made sense um, long term. Um, our goal, obviously, is to eventually, we want to plant a church in Lake Havasu. Um, and so you would ask, that would be your question, is why Lake Havasu? And I'm like, I don't it, know. Isn't it obvious? Yeah, it's like, who People doesn't want to live in Havasu? need Jesus, man, yeah, I'm yeah. telling you. So yeah, that, that would be a both <laughs> short-term and, uh, and long-term. So that's our plan, that's our goal. Um, I will t he's going to be here to serve us, but we are also going to be here to serve him as well, and we're excited about that, so welcome. We are glad to have you here. Let me pray for you, and I will touch you appropriately. As that's called laying on of hands as we pray for you. Uh, holy God, we are thankful for the way that you bring people to redemption. And God, I just pray that we would be good stewards of that. Uh, help us to um, uh, uh, engage Sean and be in relationship with him. Uh, help us to learn from him and help us to uh, lead and guide him as well. We pray for he and uh, uh, his wife Candace and his family. And God, thank you for bringing them here. I pray that you would bless them and that you would be glorified through all of this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Here we go. Uh, we are in the fourth week of this series, uh, Who Is This? Dot, dot, dot. And then we fill in the blanks. It's a series all about Jesus. The first week, we talked about the resurrection. The second week, Tyler was up here, and he talked about really the darkness of the world and the sinfulness of people. And then the third week, last week, we contrasted that with the sinlessness of Jesus, and we unpacked what all of that meant. And then this week, for me, the fourth week, this is, this is like the nexus of this whole series. We're, we're going to answer the question today, who is this who takes away the sin of the world? In other words, what was behind the death of Jesus? Why did he have to die? Why was it so violent and horrific and why did Mel Gibson get involved? Now, I, I can't answer the Mel thing. You can go ahead and go online and figure that out for yourself. But we do have answers, I think, for that other question. The big question, why did Jesus have to die? What, what motivated that? And, I, and I'll just, I'll do this uh, inductively. I'll give you the answer right up front. One word, love. And if you wanted to use two words, it would be costly love. Today, I, my goal really today is for you to walk out of here understanding that it was costly love that motivated what happened to Jesus uh, and, and what God has done for us. So if you want to go to Isaiah 53 in your Bibles and your, and your apps, whatever it is that you're, you're doing, we will eventually get there, but I really need to set some context first. So let me go ahead and do that. Um, people like to talk about the love of God and how God is love, and, and I am good with that. that mark me down for a yes on the love of God. But one of the things that I tend to push back against a little bit is, is, is when we only talk about the love of God and don't realize that there are many other sides to God. In fact, <clears throat> one of the ones that we tend to downplay in our culture is that if God loves, he must also therefore by definition hate something. So what is it that God hates? 
Well, he hates sin. Now, I want to be really clear about this. He doesn't hate sinners. He loves sinners, but he really hates sin. And, and I know that, again, just being a student of, of uh, culture and, and, and the times that we live in, uh, I know that we struggle with that sometimes. All of us, myself included. In fact, I think I have a Ph. It's never been awarded by a, a university, but I think I have a Ph.D. in the ability to mitigate, excuse, rationalize, and downplay my sin. Okay, I'm really good at that. I'm pretty good at pointing out your sin, but but kind of rationalizing my sin. That's that self-centered bias thing kicking in again. And, and, and so I recognize that many times we look at, at God and the fact that he hates sin and we say, okay, what is really the big deal? I mean, come on, it's not really all that bad, is it? Well, let me try to redefine what sin is in terms of how God might look at it. Um, I also know that all of us really hate injustice. Uh, we live in a time when we're concerned about justice, we're concerned about justice issues. For the last 15 or 20 years, churches have actually uh, started having justice ministries and justice departments. This has become a big issue. You can talk to my wife, Jackie, and she will tell you that if there's one thing that gets me really angry, it's seeing an injustice. And so I know that a lot of us are really concerned about injustice. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that sin, if you're not that concerned about sin, um, like I can be sometimes, and think about it, God, uh, think about sin in terms of God looking at sin as an injustice, because that's really what it is. God is holy, we are not, and so when we sin, actually an injustice has occurred, and it's occurred in three ways, and this is why he doesn't like sin. First of all, a sin is an injustice directed against God because it separates us from God, and it demonstrates that he is holy and we are not. So it's a, an injustice directed against God. And then when we sin, often we sin against others. Many times we don't even realize we're sinning against others. And that becomes an injustice against others as well. Uh, any of you, if you are married, you understand the injustice of when somebody sins against you. You cannot take two imperfect people, put them together in a relationship as close as, as marriage, and never have sin and injustice happening to each other, okay? So when we, when we sin, we're also committing injustices against others. And then, and then another one is when we sin, we're also committing an injustice against ourselves. And we need to recognize that as well. Uh, one of the biggest struggles that I have in my own life is... Uh, trying to figure out my own sin and how unjust that sin is to me and who I am called to be in God and who God wants me to, to be and, in fact, how much God loves me because, uh, uh, because of his demonstration of that love through the sacrifice of Christ. So uh, when I sin, I'm also committing an injustice against myself. So this is why God hates sin. So we need to understand this. And as I said... Sin separates us from God because God is holy and we are not. And, and that's Romans 3. All have sinned, everyone has sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wage of sin, in other words, the payment for sin, the debt for sin, the punishment for sin. I know we don't, that's the big P word in our culture today. We don't like that word, but the punishment for sin is death. Okay? So this is a big deal. And so... If sin is a problem and it separates us from God, there must be a way to be able to pay for sin so that we might be reconciled to God and brought into relationship to him. And that can happen in one of two ways. There are only two ways. There's no C option. It's A and B. One way is for the individual sinner to pay that debt. 
And, and the individual sinner pays that debt by being separated from God at physical death then for eternity. This is that uh, thing called hell that Scripture speaks about rather clearly and throughout uh, Scripture. And again, I, I know that all of us would like a way around the doctrine of hell. We'd like to just be able to get around that. And I believe me, I would lead the charge on that. If I were God and I had set up this system, I would have not included the hell thing. But I'm not God, so I didn't get to, to be able to do that. So really what this points out to us is that at some point, you and I need to come, come to grips with this foundational question. Are we going to believe what God has told us about sin and heaven and hell and redemption and reconciliation? Or are we going to choose instead to try to manipulate, redefine, or just simply ignore what God has said? I mean, that's a, that's a fair question that all of us are going to have to deal with. Do we accept it or are we going to try to push back against it? So one way for this sin to be paid for is for the individual sinner to pay for it him or herself. But there is another way. And this is the way that I would suggest to you, okay? It is called substitutionary atonement. Now, I know that's a big term, but we need to learn this term. It's an important term. Substitutionary atonement. Atonement would mean payment, and substitutionary would mean somebody else is making it, okay? A and so you talk about the Old Testament the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law system for substitutionary atonement, here's how one author describes it. In the Old Covenant, sin was taken care of by the ritual through which the people offered the blood or the flesh of an animal to God as a substitute payment for their sin. So there's that idea of substitutionary. And the animals that would be offered would be all the varieties of sheep, so lamb, ewe, uh, ram, uh, any type of oxen or bull, uh, a goat could be offered, and then there were certain types of birds, mostly pigeons, that could be offered as well. So here's what we know about the payment of sin according to God, who we need to understand is a loving God in spite of how this might make us feel. And the reason I really want to drill down on this is because I'm one of those people that gets really queasy about this, okay? For sin to be paid for, taken away, taken care of, wiped away, two things have to happen. Something has to die, and blood has to be shed. Something has to die, and blood has to be shed. And I know that we flinch at that. I flinch at that. I, uh, this weekend, just a weird weekend, I flew out Friday night to Chicago, got into Midway um, very late, and then had to drive, if you know the Chicago area, I had to drive down to Kankakee, Illinois. I'm very proud that I can pronounce the name of that. Had to drive down to Kankakee, which is about an hour and 20 minutes south of, south, south of Midway Airport, in order to do a wedding on Saturday for a very, very good family friend, and then, and then race back up to Midway and get on a plane and get back in here late last night. So essentially, I was gone about 24 hours to uh, Chicago. Uh, these are old friends, and Kankakee, if you know anything, anybody know anything about Kankakee, Illinois? Any, anything at all? Okay, it's, it's a rural area, lots of farming and all that stuff. So um, I stayed at the brother of the bride. The bride is the one I know the best, but I know the brother really well, too. He's, he's a pretty good friend of mine. Um, he's 28, single. He's got a fiancé, all that stuff. Got a really nice house in Kankakee. Um, and, and, and so Saturday morning, yesterday morning, he and I and his two cousins, who were up from Arkansas, um, and they're, un they're in their late 20s. We went out to breakfast, hung out for breakfast, had a lot of fun, and then we went back to his house, and this was just a whole new experience for me. 
We went into the living room, sat down, and when you have four guys in a living room, you just inevitably turn on the TV, and that's exactly what they did. And he's got Dish Network. I've got Cox Cable, so I don't know about any of this stuff, but he's got Dish Network, and he, he went to a channel that I didn't know existed. It's channel 342 on the Dish Network, and I have no idea what the name of this show was, but it was a show, a television show, about guys who were hunting fish. They were not fishing for fish. They were hunting fish with bows, very sophisticated, technologically advanced bows. Some of you guys might know what I'm talking about. With arrows that had a rope attached to the arrow. And they walk around these ponds and these small little bodies of water with their bows. And if they see one of these fish sneak up to the surface, okay, what they do is they draw back their bow and they shoot the fish with this arrow, okay? And there were fish this big in these ponds that they were following these guys. And I mean just one after another, shunk, shunk, shunk. Just, and and it, it was like I'd seen this movie 100 times in 15 minutes. They, they, would, they would pull the fish out by the rope and the fish would be at the end of the arrow and the fish would be shaking and there'd be blood and there'd be, it'd be open and one guy, one guy cut the fish's head off and all this. Uh, and finally after 15 minutes, I just said, I, I gotta go take a shower. I can't take this. Anymore. I, I get it. I don't like to see anything suffer. But you have to understand, I'm, I'm with a bunch of, let me tell you something. I'm with a bunch of guys who wear 90% of the time they're wearing camo. There was not a pair of skinny jeans to be found anywhere in that house. I'm telling you. This is the, and, and hats cockeyed and sideways. Oh, they got another fish. Come on, Rupert, let's go. Okay, so uh, this is what it was. So I get it. I get, I'm just watching this. And they're into it, you know. They're looking for more shows like this. Okay, I, I don't like it. But this is what God has set up. So you read Leviticus chapter 16, which is in the Old Testament. You can go home and read the whole, path, the whole chapter. I'll read you verses 15 and 16. Here's what it says. This is what God set up for the substitutionary payment of people's sins under the Old Covenant. It says, he, the priest, shall slaughter the goat, in this case, for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He'll sprinkle the blood on the atonement cover, on the payment cover, and in front of it. This is inside the Holy of Holies. This is the Day of Atonement. This is atoning for all of the sin of the people of Israel for that year. In this way, he will make atonement because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And then the author of Hebrews uh, in the New Testament reiterates this fact. In Hebrews chapter 9, he says... In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we can go all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis and see this, uh, this sacramental system of, of killing animals set up. I mean, it's, it's, it's early on. So the only other way for our sins to be forgiven, paid for, wiped out is through substitutionary atonement and ultimately that would be Jesus on the cross. This is the meta narrative of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. In other words, they predicted it would happen. It happened in the New Testament and some people knew it was him and knew it was going to happen to him because of these prophecies. So consider for instance John the Baptist statement in John chapter 1, in light of what we just discussed about this Old Testament sacrificial system. Now you put this statement into context when John says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So in terms of taking care of our sin, what John has told us there is that Jesus is the ultimate lamb, Jesus is the best lamb, Jesus is the last lamb, and Jesus is the only lamb. So this is what happened on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus is telling us three things are done on the cross, and they're really three things that we don't like to do. Number one, we no longer have to sacrifice any animal as a substitute for our sins. We're done bringing in bulls and goats and lambs and birds and, and killing them. We're done with that because our sin has been paid for. That's a good thing, right? Second thing that we're done with is that we no longer have to worry about following the law. He's taking care of that for us as well. So the futile attempts that we make at following a list of rules, that's done as well. It is finished. And then the third thing that's finished is this, uh, what Tim Keller calls the existential angst that you and I all feel, the anxiety the, that we feel because we're not in a right relationship with God. And as such, what we end up doing is we try to use worldly things to fill in for that void, that relationship that we should have with God. Because of Jesus on the cross, we can now have that relationship with, that, with God, that personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with him, and we don't need to fill our lives with things of the world that can't satisfy that anxiety that we have anyway. So now, if you've ever studied crucifixion and also the events that led up to Jesus' crucifixion, you understand that in spite of the fact that he sacrificed himself for us on the cross, it was still one of the most horrific and brutal events ever recorded in human history. And there's just no way to sugarcoat this. It was brutal. He was whipped. He was beaten and, 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 and just mercilessly beat up. He was shamed and humiliated. He, he was made to carry his cross to the place where he'd be nailed to it. And and uh, most scholars say that that crossbar was about 70 pounds that he had to put on his shoulders, his shoulders which had been whipped open prior to that, so that must have been painful. And then when they got him there to Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross, his hands and his feet. And then just for good measure, after the crucifixion was over, they ran him through with a sword. I mean, this was absolutely brutal. And considering all the animals that went before him, it seemed as though what happened to Jesus was especially punitive, above and beyond in terms of the violence, and we need to understand it was. But if you believe Isaiah, people knew this was coming, and they knew it was because of the love of God that this happened. In the face of all of this violence and all of this horror of the cross, consider what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12. He said that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy, okay? Now, we know that Jesus struggled we know that he prayed that the cup be removed from him. We know that he sweated blood. Nobody would want to go through what he went through. That did not diminish the fact that Jesus did this with joy. And the reason he did it with joy was because he was not motivated by fear or weakness, but rather he was motivated by love. He didn't have to do this. There are some people who believe that our sin obligated God to send his son. No. He didn't have to do this. He did this because he loves us and because Jesus felt the joy of doing this for us, even though it was very painful. 
So now, let's end our time together by taking a look at this prophetic passage in Isaiah 53. In fact, what we're doing today is we're kind of working backwards. I want you to look at this passage now, knowing what we know, and I want you to look at it. This passage was written 700 years before this happened to Jesus. And this passage specifically talks about the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who is to come, who is Jesus. So let's start with the first three verses. This is what God is saying about the one to come. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. I want to come back to that verse too, so remember that. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Think about that verse 2. That is their way of saying that the one who is coming is not going to be obvious. He's not going to be a superstar. He's not going to be a rock star not going to be a model, not going to be some wonderful entertainer. He's not going to be some articulate part politician or slick talk show host. He's not going to be a great athlete. He's not even going to be that person who somehow has achieved the status of 1,000 friends on Facebook. It's not going to be any of those kinds of things that you and I might value today. Here's another way of saying it. The Savior that God is going to send isn't going to be cool. He's not going to be cool. He's not going to be somebody you look at and go, well, this is obvious. He's the guy. He's not going to be any of those things that we value. Why is this? It's because God does not use things that are going to distract people from his glory. That is a huge deal. Um, with one exception, someday I'll tell you this story because it was just, it was really tense. But with one exception, when Satan comes at me and attacks me, he does it in really subtle ways. His favorite way to attack me, and because I, I go for it almost every time, unfortunately, you can pray about that with me, he likes to just distract me. He just, just distract me. No full frontal attacks except that one time. Most of the time, he just distract. He just starts something over here, and then he'll know I'll run over here, and I'll be doing this, and really I should be over here paying attention to this. He just loves to distract me. So Satan distracts me in very negative ways that way. But also, Satan likes to distract us in what I would call a positive way, by, by bringing to our attention these really slick, exciting, superstar kind of people where we start to look at them and forget about God. We start to give them glory and we don't give God glory. And that's a problem as well. We can get distracted that way as well. It, it's as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. God uses the foolishness of the world to shame the wise. He uses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he chooses what is low in the world to bring to nothing those things that we value. You see, the gulf between God's message and man's opinion is huge. This is why God used somebody that we wouldn't esteem highly because the, the glory has to go to God. And, and then look again one more time at verse 3. It says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one 
from whom men hid, hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It just reminds me of this passage in Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 44. This is Jesus on the cross, and see if this doesn't sound familiar. And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, wagging their heads, that is, that is uh, 2,000 years ago culture, their way of saying they were talking trash, okay? And they were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So understand that what Isaiah wrote 700 years earlier is being played out 700 years later right here in Matthew chapter 27, and there's other passages like that. Now, these next three verses, verses 4 through 6 in Isaiah 53, these are the heart of the passage of this chapter. These are the three verses that uh, Eugene read for us. Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's another way is that we looked at him and said, well, he's cursed by God. Okay. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These three verses are the centerpiece of the sweet exchange between our sinfulness and God's righteousness. What Jesus did made us righteous. This passage is a clear comparison and contrast of our rebellion and sin to God's unconditional, costly, ruthless, and radical love and forgiveness that he has for us. It, it's just two ends of the spectrum showing the, the, the difference. And the passage says that Jesus would be mocked by us and cursed by the very people he came to save. Yet even in the midst of that, Jesus bore our griefs and he, and he carried our sorrows and he was pierced for our sins and he was crushed for our immorality. Why? Because he loves us. He didn't do this out of weakness. He did this out of the strength of a costly love for us. And it says his wounds would heal us. Our wounds are healed in two senses. Number one, our spiritual wounds are healed. When we sin, we are wounded spiritually by our own sin, and we are wounded by the sin of others. We've been healed from that through the cross. But then ultimately, our, our physical bodies are also healed of all of their wounds because I've talked about this before when the new Jerusalem comes all of us are going to get those new resurrected bodies that are absolutely perfect and so we're going to be healed ultimately in that way we're going to be pain-free we're going to be perfect we're going to no longer need surgeries and medicine to be able to correct things and then God said that Jesus was chastised in order to bring us peace so I grew up in a family with five kids. I was the youngest of five kids, and, and it was bedlam in our household growing up all the time. And my parents had their hands full. 
And, and I remember that I, like on the rare occasion that I would do something wrong and I would get into trouble, okay, because I was the youngest. They never noticed me. Anyway, so when I would do something wrong, my parents would come and they would chastise me. They would say, Frank, and then they would fix my wagon, whatever that meant, okay? They would, they would chastise me. There was never a time when I would do something wrong and my parents would go over to my sister Grace and grab her and chastise her and then come back over to me and say, okay, Frank, you're good. You have peace now. We took it out on Grace. I would have really liked that if they had done that, but that wouldn't make any sense, right? But that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. He chastised Jesus and made us good. That's a wonderful transaction that has happened. And here's what we need to realize. The stakes were a lot higher than anything I could have done in my family. The stakes were much higher when Jesus did this for us. His love is just flat out amazing. And then look at those next three verses, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened his mouth, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to, to the slaughter, and like a, ship that be, uh, a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, this paragraph graphically and radically shows the difference between God and us. Whenever you and I suffer an injustice, our tendency is to, is to scream about it, to cry out about it, to shout from the rooftops about it. Uh, somebody has done an unjust thing to me. I mean, that's just the way we are. And I understand that there's nothing wrong with that. Injustice stinks and we should cry out about it. But what's interesting about Jesus is that he suffered the greatest injustice of all, and he just took it. He just took it. He was silent, and he took it for us. Again, this is a, a demonstration of his absolute sold-out and costly love for us. You know, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we are not to overcome evil with evil, but rather we are to overcome evil with good. Now, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? So I can speak, again, autobiographically here. Um, let's say Jackie. You know, what, here, here's the funny thing about marriage. You take two imperfect people and stick them together for the rest of their life. There might be a little bit of conflict, right? Isn't it just possible? Okay? So Jackie and I, we love each other very much, but we're both imperfect people. You stick us together and there's conflict, okay? So generally speaking, in our flesh, in our nature, here's how that conflict goes. I lob a bomb over at Jackie. Jackie lobs a bomb back at me. Right? Isn't this how we do conflict? Somebody lobs a bomb over at you that explodes this big. You lob a bomb over at them that explodes this big. Then they send one back that's like this. Okay? Then you're downloading stuff from the Internet because the technology is too difficult for you, right? <laughs> Okay, but that's what we do. And David Augsburger calls this the negative spiral of reciprocity. We just keep going down, 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 down. 
And what Augsburger teaches, and he teaches this because it's biblical, is he teaches that somebody has to be the bigger person and stand up and take it and say, I'm not going to do the negative thing. I'm going to be the one. Even though I owe you a bigger bomb, I'm not going to be the one that does that. I'm going to be the one instead that returns your evil for good. And you stop that negative downward spiral, and then you start that positive upward spiral. That's what Paul is talking about when he says you cannot overcome evil with evil. You need to overcome evil with good. And by the way, um, social science has, has shown that this is true. They don't care anything about the Bible. They go out and they do this, these studies on conflict resolution, and, and then they sit down and they go, here's what we discovered. Conflict goes a lot better if you overcome evil with good. And then they pat each other uh, on the back and say, this is what we've discovered in our, in our research. They go, gee, some guy wrote that 2,000 years ago. Do you realize that? Okay? Well, what Jesus did on the cross is the ultimate in overcoming evil with good. And I know that you look at the cross and you say, how can that possibly be good? Well, it's good because it was motivated out of love. It took care of our sin. And then the rest of the story, three days later, he comes busting out of the tomb. That's good. Jesus' resurrection is God's amen to his it is finished on the cross. So those are all good things. And then, and then just listen to this New Testament passage in, in 1 Peter and see if this, again, doesn't sound familiar. Peter writes this about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was, his, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who ju judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we, might not die, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep. There you go. Even Peter says this. You overcome evil with good. And that's ultimately what Jesus said. And let me reiterate here. Jesus' silence on the cross was not because of weakness. It was because of faith and love. We need to understand that. And then look one more time at, at verse 9 in Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Okay, now this is funny. This is, again, a, a prophetic passage. In other words, it kind of tells something that's going to happen in the future. You understand that when it says, and they made his grave with the wicked, Jesus was crucified between two wicked guys, right? The, the thieves and the murders on the cross. And, and here's what's really cool about that. One of those guys is in paradise with Jesus right now. He's in heaven with Jesus. So one of those thieves is yelling at Jesus and mocking him and talking trash to him. And the other guy is going, hey, shut up. Jesus, can I have your attention for a second? I think right now I'd like to be included in your deal. Would that be good? Could I, could I go with you? And Jesus says, today, you're going to be there with me in paradise. A and then it says that uh, with a rich man in his death, you realize that Jesus' tomb was owned by a very rich guy, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Okay? So these are prophecies. These are, uh, 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 some of the Old Testament has these prophecies that have come true. There's about 500 of them in the Old Testament and as I understand it, about half of them have come true so far. There are still half that will come true. We just haven't hit that time yet. But already half of them have come true. A and I know that some people look at that and go, well, so what? Well, here's the so what about that. There's a guy named Hugh Ross 
who is absolutely brilliant. I've tried reading his books. He's got a PhD in math and a PhD in, in, um, P in uh, physics, and he got both of those before he was 26 years old. I mean, the guy is off the charts brilliant. I've tried to read his books, and, and you know, the and and, I can get that pretty good, but the rest of the stuff is really tough, okay? But, but I've read summaries of what he's written, and it's really interesting. Um, Hugh Ross decided one day he was going to set out to try to disprove all the religious texts. And he saved the Bible for last. So this is one of those ironic journeys where a guy go, sets out to disprove the Bible. A month into it, God saved him. A month into his journey with Scripture, he said, you know what, this thing is true, I believe it. Uh, later on... <coughs> In one of his books, he writes about how the odds of just eight of those prophecies, we're not talking about half, we're not talking about 250, we're just talking about eight of those prophecies. The odds of just eight of them coming true are one in a number that has a one with 17 zeros behind it, okay? So I don't even know the name of that number. I said that in the first service. And because this is Arcadia and a lot of smart people go here, somebody actually came up and said, I have the number for you. Here it is. It's one with 17 zeros behind it. And under, underneath, he says it's 100 quadrillion. 100 quadrillion. That's a lot. Okay. Now, Josh McDowell once said, here, here's, a, here's a way to give you an idea of just how much one in one with 17 zeros is behind it. Take the state of Texas which I understand is a big state. Anybody here from Texas? I used to live in Abilene and Houston, so I know that Texas is really big. You can actually drive in Texas for 24 hours and only make one right turn. It's an amazing state, okay? It's just huge, all right? So you take the state of Texas, you get a bunch of silver dollars, enough to cover the state of Texas knee-high in silver dollars, okay? This is the old Josh McDowell illustration. Then you take one silver dollar, put a red X on that silver dollar, fly over the state of Texas, throw the silver dollar out. Then you get these big machines. This is reality here. You get these big machines to churn up all the silver dollars in Texas so that you lose that one with the red X on it, and you smooth it all out so that you're, you're knee-high again. Then you take somebody and you put them on the, on the border of Texas and New Mexico. You blindfold them, and you tell them to walk into, into Texas, and when you feel the need, reach down and grab a silver dollar. The odds of him pulling out that one with the X on it is one in 100 quadrillion. And, and that's just eight of them. That's just eight of these prophecies. And so this is really a huge deal. Now look at verses 10 and 11 as we wrap up. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, again, this is prophesying that Jesus would come and do this. And, and a couple things I want to mention. It says there in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is really important to understand. We think about Jesus, how Jesus was crushed physically, but that's not what God is talking about here. He's talking about how he was crushed emotionally and spiritually. W we need to really understand this. As much as Jesus was crushed physically, he was crushed more emotionally and spiritually, and he was crushed by the separation of him and his father. There was that time 
on the cross, when Jesus became our sin, God the Father could no longer look at Jesus or be in relationship with him because he had become sin. And at that moment, Jesus yelled, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we hear about the anguish of the cross, the agony of the cross, and we think it's physical, but it's really not. It's spiritual and emotional. It's that separation. Think about important relationships in your life. Maybe you've lost one of those relationships through death. My wife and her sister uh, 12 years ago lost their mother prematurely. Their mother was 60 years old. She died of a very rare disease that just snuck up on her and took her life in about a year. And, and I remember going through that with my wife especially, but also with her sister, the utter agony and anguish that they suffered through their mother being taken before her time was more than any possible physical pain that they could suffer. Now imagine Jesus has been in relationship with his father for eternity, eternity. And at that moment, they are separated. Consider the agony and anguish that he must have felt. Yes, he was beat up. He was in tremendous physical pain. But the agony of the cross ultimately was his separation from his father. That's how he was crushed. The second thing is it says there, it, this was the will of the Lord. This was God's plan all along. And God's plans do not go astray. How are your plans? Do your plans ever go astray? My plans go astray all the pick and time. And then I have to recalibrate them, and, and I only recalibrate them for them to get all screwed up and horsed up again. It's, it, but, but God doesn't have this happen. His plans never go astray. And I know that this is so violent. His plan was violent. I understand that. But we need to remember that forgiveness is costly. Have you ever forgiven somebody, I mean really forgiven them, of an atrocious offense against you? When you forgive somebody who has done something awful against you, you have to bear the pain when you forgive them, right? It's painful to let go of the retribution that you want to take out on somebody who has offended you. That's very painful. And here's the worst part of that. You can't just do it once and it's over with. I, I admit, I, I've got a situation in my life right now. It is unbearably painful for me emotionally I do not want to forgive them and and I know I must forgive them because in Christ I am forgiven of much worse things and when I do forgive them I pray that that will be the last time I have to forgive them because it's painful every time I have to forgive them but then the next day I wake up and I realize I got to forgive them again and that pain happens again Forgiveness is costly. Love is costly. This is how much God loves us. He was willing to express a costly love for us. This May, we are going to do the story of Joseph out of Genesis. I'm really excited about this. After that, we're going to do the story of Daniel. I love these Old Testament narrative stories. They are really fun and interesting to teach. Ultimately, this story of Joseph is about how his brothers sinned against him in a major way. 
the short version is that they were going to murder him but decided instead to sell him into slavery okay how many of you had brothers that sold you into slavery anybody here okay you can imagine the anger and the retribution that would build up in Joseph for 22 years until he was confronted with his brothers again. Don't you know that he would like to just give them a sword to their gut? But instead of a sword to their gut, he gave them warm tears on their necks. He cried as they were reconciled together. He let go of that offense. And instead of a sword to the gut, he embraced them with his love. Love like this is costly and it is violent when you endure the pain of the people that you are saving through your forgiveness. And God has done this for us in an ultimate way. If you are um, somebody who has not crossed the line of faith, you're not yet a Christian, you're not, you wouldn't what you would call yourself a Christ follower, I just want you to consider what God has done for you in his love for you. Consider the fact that you may have suffered in life, but God has suffered ultimately so that you would not suffer eternally. That's a big deal. And if you already are a Christ follower, consider this as a way to maybe live in light of this costly love and the suffering that he went through for us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, Paul writes these words. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together and we'll go into our time of reflection. Gracious and holy God, this is uh, challenging teaching, I know, but ultimately it is teaching that, that lets us know about the love that you have for us, the costly love, the costly forgiveness that you have given to us through your son, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to lean into that, live by it, understand it, and embrace it. God, thank you for loving us enough to send your son, and it's in his name we pray.